Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Tradition says that Peter the Apostle, one of the 12 disciples, is the author of the letter that we have as 1 Peter. It is a pastoral address to the house churches in five of the Roman provinces. Most likely, these churches are now under Peter's leadership. He says that living for Christ places us in conflict with the world, with the social norms of the world around us, and that it will sometimes lead to our ridicule or even our persecution. And he urges faithfulness, stay the course. Christ has freed us from those very social norms. We don't have to worry about pleasing people anymore, and he's freed us for something better. He says that we are witnesses and that some people may even be one to Christ without us having to say a word if we are living the way that we should. Peter, as we know, is one of the 12 disciples. The letter probably dates to 62 or 63 AD because Peter was martyred somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. Um, There are those who believe that this authorship is pseudonymous, which means it's been attributed to Peter, but that it was written later and called a letter from him to give it more authority. That was a common practice that happened in the days. They would not have considered it plagiarism, falsehood, the way that we would. And if it's pseudonymous, then it would be dated to around 70 to 100 AD. Um, But tradition has long held that it is actually written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus. We know Peter initially led the Jerusalem church. Um, We see this in Galatians 1.18, in Acts chapters 1 through 5 and 8 through 11, as well as Acts 12.17. He was one of the 12 disciples. He emerges as the leader among the disciples. He's certainly the most outspoken. I believe that Peter had strong leadership qualities. He ran a fishing business. Other people worked for him in that business, we know, um, from the stories of the, the Gospels. And so he brings that same sort of leadership to the group of the 12 disciples. Now, I'm, I love Peter because Peter is like me. He is forever sticking his foot in his mouth. Um, but that's what happens when you lead. You sometimes make mistakes. He owns his mistakes and he tries to do better. As he leads the early church, one of the first things that happens is they establish an order of deacons. Um, And once they do that, then Peter leads kind of the Jewish believers, and Stephen leads the Gentile believers. Before Acts, the book of Acts continues very far, we then see Peter and John beginning to travel, first to Samaria and then throughout the region of Judea to help establish and oversee the establishment of Christian communities in those areas. As they begin to travel a good bit, then James becomes the leader in their absence. And James is the author of the letter of James that we have in Scripture. This begins to happen around 43 
A.D., so about 10 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And when Peter and John come home from their missionary journeys, then all three of them lead together. They kind of share leadership, but we see a shift from Peter as the leader to James the leader. And we don't have any reason to believe it was ever contentious, excuse me. This was a decision that they made about what each of them was called to do, and that's what they did. Um, We also know that Peter and John continued their missionary journeys and travels for the remainder of their life. We know that Peter was martyred for his faith. There's one scholar, a man named Ludeman, who believes that James became the leader of the Jerusalem church because he was more conservative, more Jewish, than some of the other believers, especially Peter, um, and that as those conservative voices became stronger, then James becomes the leader of that. A man named James Dunn, another biblical scholar, believes that P- that Peter ends up being the bridge between Paul, who is very liberal as far as who he wants included and how he be- the things that should be tolerated, what looks like faithfulness, and James. If James was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother, a son of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born, then he grew up Jewish, and he may very well have wanted the movement begun by his brother to have stayed very Jewish in nature. There, Whereas Paul feels a great call to go and evangelize the Gentiles, and he doesn't want them to have to have a lot of requirements. They don't have to convert to Judaism first. And so it may have been that Peter who was the one actually with Jesus, one of the very first disciples called, who becomes the mediator of these two ways and helps them find the actual way forward. There are those. um, Roman Catholic tradition holds that Peter is the first bishop, and um, so our first pope, and so all of the other popes are in a line of succession from Peter. There are others who say that James was the bishop of Jerusalem and Peter became the bishop of Rome. So they both end up having kind of equal authority. And so their authority has to bend to one another as the church develops. Um, Traditionally, his death, his martyrdom, says that he was crucified. And he asked to be crucified upside down because he had denied Christ and he had not completely lived up to the worthiness that God had called him to. If you remember, Jesus predicted Peter's life and death, especially his later life. He says, now you go where you want to and do what you want to do, but when you're older, you will stretch out your hands and be led where you do not wish to go. And there are those who say that this is the example of that, that he was Um, He stretched out his hands on a cross and died for Jesus. There was also, Peter was persecuted for his faith, and Roman stocks were an instrument of torture. You know, they stretched out your hands in those because the um, church father Clement of Alexandria says that Peter suffered many, many times for his faith in Christ. All right, so let's jump in to the letter that Peter has written to us. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he compares their lives to those of exiles or refugees. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, according to John fifteen nineteen, This land is not our home. We are refugees here. 
Then he says that we are chosen, destined, and sanctified. There's God's plan, there's God's Spirit's work, and there's Christ's sacrifice that all have gone in to creating us and making us who we are. I stopped and took a look at the Greek here, and if we translated those words just roughly, that according to foreknowledge of God Father, by sanctification of Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. So we were chosen. We've been chosen by God. That's God's plan. God planned to choose us. He has chosen to give us a way to be made right. We are destined for obedience. That's what God wants. That's what we were created for, was to be obedient to God. And then we are sanctified or redeemed by Jesus Christ and by His example, and even to death on a cross. And He says, grace and peace in abundance, or may grace and peace be multiplied for you. Verses 3 through 9, He says, we have been reborn just like Jesus was resurrected. We have an undying hope. It's unable to be taken from us. The promise of God does not fade. It does not rot. It is immune to all of the worldly threats. Um, This new life that we receive is a source of joy, even in the midst of hardships. The hardships are tempering our faith, just like the fire does to metal. It purifies it. Um, And he mentions specifically here gold. The impurities are removed from it. It also makes me think of what happens with pottery when it goes into a kiln. So a piece of pottery is formed by the clay and it dries out. So it's it's functional now, but it's not nearly as durable as it is once it has been fired in a kiln. Um, Christ is revealed in our faith. That firing process um, reveals the beauty of Christ to us to the world through us. And he says that the ones he's writing to now, they may not have known Jesus in person like he did, but they do know him and they love him. Peter can see that in them. Just because we weren't with Jesus when Jesus was physically on earth doesn't mean that Jesus isn't with us and that we can't know him. In verses 10 through 12, the prophets were talking about Jesus in their writings, we see those kind of um, future echoes um, of Jesus there. And he was also talking about the believers now when they spoke about remnants, about suffering servants, about salvation, about future covenants and things being written on our hearts and all the things like that. In verses um, 13 through 16, we start a section that will last through the third verse of chapter 2. To be holy is to obey God's word out of deep respect for God's wishes rather than out of compulsion or fear. We obey. We live like God wants us to because of God's love. It's, It's an act of reciprocating love. We don't do it. We don't have to be compelled to do it, and we don't do it out of fear. He talks about girding up our loins. That's preparing for action. Men and women, both in ancient times, wore long tunics that went all the way down to their ankles. Now, men, 
when they needed to do something strenuous, when they were preparing for great action, would take the back of their tunic, pull it through their legs and up and tuck it into their belt, virtually making a pair of pants. That would allow them to run without tripping um, or to engage in strenuous actions. God gives us the power to control ourselves. We have to make up our mind to be faithful. Once again, it echoes this theme of whereas we don't possess all the power to save ourselves, to sanctify ourselves, we do possess some power. We possess, excuse me, the ability to exercise our free will in the direction of God. And we need to do our part so that God is free to do God's part. In verse 16, we have a reference to Leviticus 20, 26. In verses 17 through 21, we see that God is the God of all, and God judges impartially. God judges based on our relationship to Him through Jesus Christ and through and on our obedience. We've been ransomed by the blood of Christ, not by money, but by blood. Um, and the feudal ways of the ancestors would be false religions, religious rituals that are empty of meaning and heart, and of the culture. The, the culture itself is a feudal way that has come to us from the ancestors. Now, many today have a little bit of a hard time with atonement, substitutionary atonement theology of faith, that Christ was the sacrifice, that he had to die for us as the final offering. We no longer make animal sacrifice because Christ once and for all was the sacrifice. There are people who are uncomfortable with that, um, but it does seem to be how many of the original apostles and early Christians believed. For those who subscribe to that theology, it certainly is based in Scripture because we can hear where they would get that from Peter's writings here. And in verse 20, we see that this has always been the plan. From the foundation of the world, Christ was always the plan, getting to a place where we can be reconciled with God, where we can be released from sinfulness, where death doesn't have the last word, um, where the enemy doesn't rule us. All those things were have always been the plan. Verses 20 through, through 25, um, having chosen relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we need to live like it. God gives us love and gives it in abundance, and we're to love others, and we're to love them deeply or constantly. The deeper we love somebody, the more faithful and constant our loving actions toward them are, and we need to have pure motives. We don't love them for what we can get out of it. We love them because we love them. Verse 24 is a reference to Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, and the word glory here is a reference to constancy, so being consistent. Moving into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter admonishes us to get rid of anything that blocks loving in this way, loving like God wants us to. Get rid of things like malice, um, guile, insincerity, and um, envy. Like a newborn baby craves and cries for milk to be nursed, um, 
so that they can grow. That's why they're hungry. They need to grow and they need a lot of it. We too should be craving and crying out for spiritual milk so that we can grow and mature. God's nourishment is good and we should crave it and want it and receive it and grow. Verses 4 through 10, um, he mixes some metaphors here. We are both the temple and we are the priests in the temple who minister. We are living stones. Cross-reference this with Matthew 21, 42. Uh, We no longer have animal sacrifices, but we do have spiritual sacrifices, and those are obedience and worship. In verse 6, it's a reference to Isaiah 28, 16. Um, Be put to panic is a way of saying, is the same thing as saying shame. There's no need to panic or to doubt stability. God is sure. Verse 7 is a reference to Psalm 118.22, and verse 8 references Isaiah 8.14. Peter's going to quote an awful lot of Scripture, make a lot of references um, to Scripture passages. Jesus is our solid foundation, our cornerstone, the one, the, the foundation stone against which all the rest of the foundation and the walls will be built. It's a very important and key piece of any stable building. Others have rejected him as the cornerstone. They um, did not think it was fit to be used as as the um, key foundational piece. Others have tripped over it because it didn't look like what they thought it should look like. They didn't see him as the Messiah. In verse 9, we are chosen, priests of the chosen, Um, All of us now have been called. Um, Israel was supposed to be a priestly nation to the world. We are supposed to be an example to the world of what God's kingdom looks like. We are holy. We're not just perfunctory in this role, like a priest going through the motions, but not really meaning it or believing in it. No, we're to actually be holy We're to take what we do seriously. We're to feel it with all that we have and to be that light and that example. We're called to proclaim God. We once were in darkness spiritually, but now we're in the light. And so we can see and others can see because of us. Verse 10 is a reference to Hosea 1. Verses 11 and 12, the battle against the cultural influences has a spiritual component. We're warring. They're warring for our soul. Um, Others may slander you with what they say, but you answer what they say that is not true by the way you live your life, by the way you behave. Stay honorable. Don't get down in the dirt. Um, If you don't wrestle with a pig, um, because you'll get muddy and the pig will like it. Um, So just answer them by consistently living a life of faithfulness to God. Verses 13 through 17, Peter tells us to honor the civic authorities to the greatest extent that we possibly can. We aren't supposed to compromise our faith convictions, like we don't worship other gods. We don't do things that are immoral, even if they become law. We're to be good citizens. Um, Don't use your faith as a reason to be disagreeable, unruly, to create chaos, or to break the law. That's one of the ways that you shut up those who are talking about uh, Christians and about the faith and about Jesus. And 
if you are a good citizen, if you're a good person and people can see that, it also makes it harder for them to hate you and to be hostile towards you. We are free from sin. We are not free to sin. And to be unruly without good cause is to be sinful. He then gives some very simple rules to guide us in this. We should honor everyone, love other believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So once again, I got down in the weeds with this, and I looked at the words that are being used here, because what's the difference between honoring others and honoring the emperor or the civic authorities, loving others and fearing God? What does that mean? So the word used for honor, both in honoring everyone and honoring emperor, comes from the Greek verb tomeo, which means to fix the value, to set the price, to estimate its value. So we're to honor or reverence everyone, but to properly assign the value of that relationship and the extent to which we should honor them. The word that is used for loving other believers is agape. Um, So we're to love them completely. And remember, agape love is loving unconditionally, but it means to love them with our actions, not just our feelings and to love them with our actions, even in the absence of feelings, to want the best for them. The word for fearing God here comes from the Greek verb phobio, to terrify, to frighten, to dread, to revere. You may hear the beginnings of the word phobia in there, in phobio. Don't overvalue the power or the need to appease others including other people and the civic authorities. If you're going to be afraid of something, if you're going to be afraid of public opinion, don't be afraid of that. Fear God. Fear God, not humans. Um, We do want to value God. I want to say to you, though, that I believe the testimony of Scripture, including what Peter would say to us if he was talking to us now, is that we are not to be terrified of God but that we should take very seriously what it would mean to put ourselves in opposition to God. We don't want to live in a way that places us on the opposite team rather than on God's team, but that God is not someone of whom we have to be terrified because of Jesus Christ. I know that we read all the way through the end of chapter 3 this week in our Read Together 2021 plan. However, There's been so much that Peter had to say in these parts that I felt like needed explanation, and there's a good bit as we move forward. I'm going to stop here and put the the rest of chapter two, the final section, and chapter three in with chapter four and five um, as we continue to read 1 Peter. So look for that podcast to get the rest of this.